Welcome to Thinking Philosophy. I'm Deborah Stone, coming to you from the Australian Catholic University, where we believe in asking the big questions. Probably the area of her life where philosophy is most visible is healthcare ethics, which pose difficult dilemmas that are often life and death issues. Philosophical disputes are at the centre of hot-button issues such as abortion and euthanasia. But ethical questions also underlie more everyday issues, such as how we spend our health budget, how much autonomy we give dementia patients, and what we expect from our doctors. Some hospitals even have philosophers on staff to help them weave a good path through this difficult ground. Dr Bernadette Tobin is an Australian philosopher of healthcare ethics. She's a reader in philosophy at the Australian Catholic University and director of the Plunkett Centre for Ethics at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. She's with us on Thinking Philosophy today to discuss ethical decision-making in the healthcare setting. Welcome to the podcast, Bernadette. Thank you. Why are healthcare ethics so controversial? Well, of course, much of the time, the ethical issues are not controversial. Uh, right and wrong, what, what it's reasonable or unreasonable to do, are clear. But that said, there are controversies, and one that I've just been working on recently is what should a doctor do if she thinks that the feeding tube that is keeping her patient alive is neither restoring nor maintaining the frail elderly person's health nor alleviating the physical symptoms of her condition but the patient's family insist either that everything be done or that they have had enough. So there's an example of something that's controversial. Now, there are many factors involved here, but one very general cause of the controversies is that there are two very different conceptions of medicine in the marketplace of ideas. On one view, medicine is to be understood as an industry. Somebody provides a commodity called healthcare and someone consumes it. The doctor is the provider and the patient is the consumer. On another view, medicine is to be understood as a profession. Someone, the doctor, professes to be able and willing to help a sick person to be healed and someone, the patient, seeks that healing. The clash between those two conceptions of medicine and healthcare generates much of the controversies because they suggest two different roles for both doctor and patient. Given that disagreement is inevitable, those two different conceptions of healthcare also play into the question of who takes responsibility for ethical decision-making. The doctor, the patient, the hospital, the religious advisor. Where does the buck stop? Well, on the view of medicine as a profession, the doctor as someone who's able and willing to help a sick person be healed and the patient as someone seeking that healing, the doctor is responsible for investigating the cause of illness, 
informing and advising the patient about treatment options, including further useful investigations, etc. The doctor's responsible for all of that and for doing that well. The patient is responsible for accepting or rejecting that advice and ultimately for authorising or not authorising the treatment. So doctor and patient in the simple case, and mostly they doctors act in teams, have different roles and thus different areas of decision making. There must be times though when there's a, a grey area. Um, there's always, pretty well always, scope for judgment, good judgment. And you hope the doctor will make wise decisions with respect to what information she conveys and what advice she gives. And you hope the patient will make wise decisions about her own health care. There's been a recent change in our attitude to doctors. We used to regard them as demigods and follow their instructions religiously. But now we focus on informed consent and the patient's right to autonomy. Does that indicate a move from one understanding of medicine to the second view? Um, no, I, I think um, what it indicates is um, a different clash of ideas and that's between two ideas about how to understand our responsibility for our own bodies. On one view, you own your own body. It's your property and you can do whatever you like with it. On another view, you are the steward of your own body and you have the responsibilities of a steward to take good care of it. Now, it's the latter view which informs healthcare in the Catholic Christian tradition, just as I should respect you, body and spirit, so I should respect myself, body and spirit. Does that idea of stewardship depend on a belief in God? Uh, no, it doesn't. It, um, it has origins which both predate Christianity and um, come from Greek ideas that do not involve any conception of God. But it is certainly picked up in the Jewish and Christian traditions and no doubt in other religious traditions too. The issue of people with different belief systems living in the same society brings us to the question of individual conscience. What happens when the patient wants a procedure the doctor doesn't believe in? Let me begin with a question in order to answer your question. What should doctors do if the parents of a child with severe developmental disabilities, let's call her Ashley, request that they perform a hysterectomy and a mastectomy on their daughter and give her hormones to restrict her growth. They're well motivated, they want to be able to continue to care for their daughter as she grows up. Now, what should doctors do in that circumstance? There are two questions. One, we need to understand 
what it means to say that the doctor should act in accordance with his conscience and then we need to understand what scope there should be and what limits there should be on respect for individual conscience. On the first question, there are broadly speaking two ways of understanding conscience. On one view, it's, it is no more than the individual person, the individual doctor's own inner beliefs, whatever they are. On another view, it's the doctor's grasp of the morally salient features of a situation. On the first view, the doctor cannot be mistaken. His conscience, his conscience can't be mistaken. It's not that kind of uh, judgment. On the second view, it clearly can be. Uh, conscience is fallible. Now, it's the second view of conscience which informs our Catholic Christian tradition. And so we recognize that any individual person's judgment can be mistaken. The question then is, what in, in a good medical profession, what scope should there be for the exercise of individual conscience? And here there are two views, uh, and it's a very current debate in medical ethics. On one view, there should be very little scope at all. Doctors, if they're not prepared to provide the uh, interventions that people want, um, there should be very little scope for them, and uh, it's even said they should be prepared to find another profession. On another view, there should be very wide scope for individual conscientious judgment, with limits only in circumstances where the life or health of the individual patient is at risk. It's a lot easier, I suppose, in a big city where there's always the option of sending someone to another doctor. Um, uh, yes, yes, that's true. But there is an issue, isn't there, even in sending someone to another doctor to do a procedure that one isn't prepared to do oneself? Well, here the, the, um, the, the question is whether um, if I'm asked to do something that I really think I shouldn't do, whether I'm complicit in something that I think is seriously wrong if I simply send the person who wants that procedure off to somebody else. Uh, imagine that a woman comes wanting her daughter to receive some form of um, what used to be called female circumcision, today more likely called um, uh, genital mutilation. Now, you know, there are various mild forms of, the, of that procedure and various um, very grotesque forms of that pr procedure. So um, one thing that will be important will be how serious is the doctor's objection to providing the procedure. And if his or her objection is very serious, then he, he or she will be reluctant simply to send the person off to somebody else who the doctor thinks will provide it.
And is there a protection for doctors who refuse to do that? Um, look, it, 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 well, that procedure mostly is illegal now, but I use it just to illustrate the point about the delicate question of the scope and limits of conscientious refusal. Um, but the, uh, these matters depend a little bit on the standards of the profession of the day, and they change, and the standards of the profession in one place as against those in another place. So there'll be more, there'll be more robust respect for the role of conscientious judgment in healthcare in some places and at some times than in other places and at other times. So the issue comes up here, for example, with regard to abortion. Um, some doctors will do abortions, some doctors won't. Um, if a doctor who has the, the medical um, qualifications to do it but does, has an ethical objection, chooses not to, can they simply say, I'm not able to help you in any way, or do they have to refer? Well, if so first of all, we need to be clear on what is an abortion. If we're talking about um, deliberate terminations, um, the law in Victoria differs from the law in New South Wales. The law in Victoria says that if you're not prepared to provide this procedure, then you have an obligation to refer the person to someone you know will provide it. In New South Wales, there's more respect for individual conscience on that matter, and the obligation on the doctor is simply to make sure that the person seeking that procedure is able to find information about where she could um, access it. Okay. What constitutes a reasonable procedure is clearly a matter of degree. Um, most people would accept, for example, that a person born with a very unusual facial feature has the right to have that removed. We'd say they were correcting a deformity. But once you get on to enhancing or changing the face, it becomes a grey area. There are some very extreme cases, aren't there? Um, is it up to the doctor to draw the line? And what principles should guide that decision-making? If I can answer that by telling you what's in our code of ethics um, about um, cosmetic procedures. Um, when you say our code of ethics? I or? mean the code of ethical standards for Catholic health and aged care services in Australia. Um, according to um, the understanding of health and health care in that code, cosmetic surgery as distinct from reconstructive surgery or surgery to correct a deformity, is not health care. It's not oriented to the health of the patient. And so, not surprisingly, our code goes on to say that Catholic health care facilities should resist cooperation in the excessive cultural emphasis on physical appearance. And that's where it stops. So there's scope there for the judgment of the individual doctor, surgeon, and scope for the judgment of the individual institution. The code simply says, don't endorse an excessive cultural emphasis on physical appearance. One way in which we can draw the line as a society is by deciding what we pay for. What should the, the philosophical principles be that to underlie the, the division of the healthcare budget? 
Should we refuse to pay for some procedures for some people? Heart transplants for smokers, for example, or liver transplants for alcoholics. Conversely, do we have an obligation to provide services on a means-tested or other selective basis to address disadvantage? This is a very complex question. I think there are uh, essentially four different approaches to answering it. A utilitarian one, a libertarian one, an egalitarian one, and the one that's embodied in the Catholic Code of Ethics, which I'll call a Samaritarian one, after the Good Samaritan. A utilitarian approach will say distribute health care in whatever way brings about the greatest happiness for the greatest number. So um, employ measures like quality-adjusted life years and dis disability-adjusted life years. So a utilitarian approach will emphasise efficiency and impartiality, um, but I think it's both impractical and incoherent, and it certainly benefits providing health care to the young, where the duration of the benefit will be longer than it does health care for the old. A libertarian approach says, look, there's no such thing as a right to health care, um, it's unfortunate but not unfair if some people can't afford access to health care. So we should make health care available on the basis of provider and consumer choice because taking from one person in order to give to another is stealing. Well, there is something to be said for this libertarian approach. It does recognise the value of individual liberty to spend one own, one's own resources on hotel-like facilities in hospital. But of course, the poor and the disadvantaged will miss out unless the rich are very generous. So we couldn't have a libertarian approach totally unless we removed public health care. Really. Well, I think a libertarian approach would be grossly unjust, but it does characterise the way um, a lot of health care is thought of in the United States. Now, an egalitarian approach is very much better. It says distribute health care in such a way that everyone has access to whatever health care is needed for them to enjoy equality of opportunity. That's getting much better. It's becoming much closer to justice in the distribution of health care. It sounds expensive, though. Well, strictly speaking, it would favour banning private health care. So I think politically it wouldn't be a goer, too. But here's the one that really informs um, the way we think of uh, our obligations in a, a Catholic Christian setting and the way a lot of other very good people who don't share our religious convictions also think. And we say that the society should distribute health care according to an arrangement which satisfies the following two-part test. Would I think that the principles of allocation were fair if I, or someone I loved, were in health care need, especially if I were one of those excluded from the provision or were among the weakest in the community? 
sick with a chronic, disabled, disabling and expensive ailment, poor, illiterate, etc. And the second part of the test is, would I think the principles of allocation welfare were I or someone I loved, a healthcare worker, a healthcare planner, a taxpayer or an insurer? So that Samaritarian approach recognises a right to basic health care of everyone. It recognises the value of impartiality and efficiency, but it also recognises the value of community and solidarity with the poor and the weakest in our community. And that allows for a kind of generosity that doesn't exist in the other systems. Well, it really encourages and indeed um, presents the idea that something like generosity is a responsibility and an obligation of mine. In practice, which of these do we actually function on in Australia? Well, I think that you will find elements of each of those four approaches in most people's thinking about justice in the allocation of healthcare resources. And there's a good reason for that. And that is because each of those approaches has something um, good about it, as well as um, something um, difficult about it. Um, so it's not as though they are mutually exclusive. I think the one that we should recognise as unjust, uh, first of all, is the libertarian approach. But that said, um, we do want to, I think, keep the value of a person with resources being able to spend them on, as I say, um, more comfortable accommodation in um, hope in a hospital than is available to the rest of us. The money question also comes into the question of paying people for some kinds of medical services. We don't pay people to give blood in Australia, but in many countries they do. We also don't allow paid surrogacy, but in many places. In the US, for example, you can pay a woman to have a child, carry a child, why shouldn't a woman choose to carry children for another woman? Well, I, I think what uh, amongst um, the feminists, what used to be called the radical feminists, put their finger on this. Um, they recognised that it was um, um, relatively affluent women benefiting from the exploitation of relatively poor women. As a Catholic health philosopher, you're most often called upon for comment on two issues, abortion and euthanasia. Why are these two the big sticking points um, and the issues which define Catholic bioethics in the public mind? Um, I think it's because each involves the ethical question of the intentional ending of a human life. Each of them breaches the ancient prohibition on the taking of human lives. That said, there's much misunderstanding about this prohibition. So, when our patients are dying in Catholic hospitals, we assist them to die in comfort and with dignity. We assist them to die in comfort and with dignity. 
That's precisely what we're doing when we pro provide palliative medicine and care. But what we won't do is either take the lives of our patients or assist them to take their own lives. So that is often misunderstood. And with respect to the life and health of a pregnant woman, when the life or health of a pregnant woman is at risk, Catholic hospitals will provide whatever treatment she needs, so long as the risks to her life and health are comparable to the risks, to any risks to the life and health of her unborn child, and so long as any harm to the unborn child is neither the goal nor the means of the treatment. Health is, of course, a field that is changing all the time as we're able to do more and more with technology. What do you see as the next big challenges as a health ethicist? Well, Deborah, there are so many, but let me give you just one which is truly interesting and challenging. Gene editing, genome editing, making changes to a person's DNA, to the genetic code of a any living organism, plant, animal, human being. Editing, adding, subtracting, um, as they say, cutting and pasting. Now, um, in last year, twin girls whose embryos had been edited by a Chinese scientist to provide them with resistance to a type of HIV were born. His practice was widely condemned as unethical and reckless. This year, a Russian scientist has revealed plans to use gene editing to prevent a type of hereditary deafness. Now, there's concern amongst deaf people. Um, some of them think it's just irresponsible to use this technology to get rid of a condition that some of them consider not to be serious at all, but simply to be a normal very variation. So there's much talk in the literature of gene technology being used to get rid of blood disorders in both the patient and his or her descendants, or to get rid of cancer, and also to use gene technologies to augment such human abilities as cognitive abilities and sporting abilities. So you can see the ethical questions abound. What is a disease? Who gets to determine the answer to that question? Should parents be able to modify their child's genome to protect the child from the harms of social discrimination, or only to avoid diseases? Will the technology encourage a commodity view of children, that they're not acceptable unless they come up to some standard of perfection? And will the technology, likely to be very expensive, exacerbate current economic and social inequalities between the haves and the have-nots? There's an example of a set of questions which we face. 
Doesn't sound like you're going to be out of a job anytime soon. I do hope so. <laughs> I do hope you are right. <laughs> Dr. Benedict Tobin, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Philosophy, a podcast of the Australian Catholic University. Thanks to, to Trey Karunaratha, one of our talented media production students here at ACU, for his work on the show. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it and rate it on your podcast provider so other people can enjoy it too. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Thinking Philosophy. <laughs>